Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture readings today are from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, which you will find in the Old Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 647 or on screen and from the Gospel according to John chapter 15 verses 1 through 8 which you will find in the New Testament section of our Pew Bibles on page 104 or on screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Oh God, tell us what we need to hear and show us what we ought to do to obey Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah 5, verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a father hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What man was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did you yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its edges and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hold. It shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah has pleasant planting. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed, righteousness, but heard a cry. John 15, verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered and thrown in the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So for much of the summer, my own personal time of prayer and scripture has, involved, has been involved with reading through the 12 prophetic books that we have in the Old Testament. And the last time we were together, at least when I was standing here, we were reflecting on one of the prophetic books, the book of Amos. And here we are looking at another one. We're just taking snippets from some of these books. If you've never read through those 12 prophetic books, they're not easy to understand, but there is enough there that I think will find a landing spot in, in your life as you read it. And so I would encourage you, um, as you're looking for something to read in the Bible, take on the, the, the 12 uh, prophetic books and see what uh, God will show you as you read it. As you can see from the screen, we want to talk a little bit about great expectations. And it's really interesting to think of God not only being generous and always giving as we ask, but then God also asking for something in return. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That God actually has expectations of what he wants from us. I used to live, when I first came to America, in Brooklyn, New York. And I came to America at a time when New York had a major problem with graffiti. You could see people tagging subway uh, cars, they were tagging buildings, and just all over the city, people were leaving their, their thoughts and uh, various cryptic writings on, on walls. And I remember when I was living in Brooklyn and living in New York City, I saw this interesting post. And maybe this was the, this, was, this is where people had posted, this was the, the, the social media of the 80s. But this is what I saw, posted on a wall in Brooklyn, New York expectations, the doorway to pain. And you know, when I first saw that, I had to ponder that. And the more I pondered it, I started agreeing with it. Expectations, the doorway to pain. Anne Lamott comes along and she writes, and essentially says the same thing. She said, expectations are resentments under construction. And I think that what, what that means for all of us in this room is that we've all, at various times in our lives, set big goals, big ideas, and we're working hard, and we're expecting, because of the input and the investment and the hard work, that we will find the results to be positive. But we've also, many of us in this room, have lived long enough to know that that's not always true, that sometimes the reverse happens despite our best intentions, despite our hard work and our investment, things that we hope for do not always materialize. And I know that is a very, very difficult thing to accept. For some of us, it could be the expectation of a pregnancy that just never happens. Could be the expectation of a promotion or a job that doesn't materialize, or it could be the, the possibilities of a budding relationship that just crashes and burns. 
because of a betrayal. Or maybe it's that couple who gets married with the expectations of joy and completeness and bliss, but instead of having all the wonderful things that can come from a marriage, they are experiencing the daily grind of pettiness and arguments and put-downs. We all know what that feels like, to put our best efforts in and the results fizzle. And so when you think of, think of this morning's text, you can understand a little bit about the feelings of the owner of this vineyard. Because according to the reading that we just heard, the owner did everything right. The owner found a fertile hill. The owner cleared the land of rocks. The owner supplied ample water. The owner built a wall to protect the produce from thieves. And after such a heavy investment of time and money and effort, who can blame the owner for counting the chickens before they're hatched? Who can blame the owner for dreaming of plump, ripe, sweet grapes or imagining people streaming to his vineyard to buy his crops. You can't blame the owner. But as you heard in the reading, despite all those efforts, things didn't go according to plan. The vineyard was a dud. It yielded, some translations say, rotten grapes. I think in the Hebrew, it's closer to saying it yielded bitter grapes with large seeds instead of edible sweet grapes. And then along comes Isaiah the troubadour. Isaiah the songwriter. He's in touch with the owner. He's in touch with the feelings of disappointment of the owner. And so this songwriter composes this very mournful song that rehearses the owner's disappointments. And here are the lyrics to this song. My owner had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. My owner dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines, the very best. My owner built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it so that the wine could be produced and stored and, and everything was ready. And then the song takes this very somber turn, capturing more of the owner's disappointment. And you hear the voice of the owner now when the owner says, I expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And very quickly, as you listen to the song, you're discovering that, wait, wait, hold on a minute. This song is not about the struggles of farming. This song is about people. In fact, it is about God's people. It is about Israel, to be exact. And Isaiah uses this very clever wordplay. And he explains the reasons for God's disappointment. And if you have your Bibles open, if you have your Bibles open, that's a hint, by the way. That's a subtle way of saying, open your Bible. If you have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 5 and you look at verse 7, 
Isaiah gives a little bit of the reason. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. He expected justice. See that word, expected? He expected justice. That's the fruit he wanted to see. But he saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness. But he heard a cry. God expected Israel, if you are familiar with the Old Testament, friends, God expected Israel to be a light to the nations. They were to lead, not follow the nations. They were to be a unique testimony of God's holiness and love to the nations. She was to be ethically different from the rest of the world, the nations around her. Israel was supposed to be a blessing to the nations so that the nations would trust in Israel's God. But according to Isaiah, the song of Isaiah, they failed. And you say, well, how could this be? I think part of the answer could be found in what I call truth distortion. That's a very serious thing. And we all fall prey to this distortion of truth. Again, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at Isaiah chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. We didn't read that. I've already exposed you to more Bible reading on a Sunday morning than you're used to, so I didn't want to force you all the way into these verses. But take a look at chapter 5, verses 20 through 21. And you get a little bit of why they got into trouble. Ah, you who call evil good and good evil. How is that possible? That's truth distortion. You who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Ah, it's a lament. You who are wise in your own eyes and shrewd in your own sight. Truth distortion. You see, the reason why this is so important for us is that truth is the basis for reality. Let me say it again. Truth is the basis for reality, not, not our truth. And I know we're told today we should live our truth. Not our feelings, not our opinions. There is a truth that is separate from us. There is an objective truth that is outside of us and is never conditioned by what we think or how we feel. And they took that kind of truth and they twisted it and they called the truth a lie and they called the lie the truth and they call the darkness the light, and they call the light the darkness, and they crowned the evil as good, and they rejected the good and said that it was evil. And I would offer to you this today that this is part of the reason why the vineyard didn't produce what it was supposed to produce. But here's the good news. Israel's failure to bear good fruit did not derail God's redemptive plan for the nations. It did not. 
I love the way Paul expresses, it, expresses this eternal plan that God had from the foundations of the world to save the world. Paul says in Galatians 4, he says, but when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that he might receive, so that we might receive adoption as children. God sent another prophet. God sent Jesus. Jesus who embodies those three offices of prophet, priest, and king. And what Israel failed to do, Jesus, through his life, and his death, and his resurrection, did for us, did for Israel what what we and Israel couldn't do. Which leads us to our New Testament reading in John 15. I think Jesus in many ways is picking up the same agricultural theme that we see in Isaiah 5 and he is teaching his disciples now how to bear the right fruit. Look then at John 15 and verse 8 and I think I have that on the screen. This is Jesus's, this is God's great expectation. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so become my disciples. Friends, let that soak in. Take, take that in. Just, just take that in for a while. Sometimes we wonder, what is it God wants? What is it that glorifies God? And here Jesus tells us in very clear terms that God is glorified when we bear much fruit. And in so doing, we become his disciples. And then if you look at John 15 and verse 16, J Jesus says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And when I read these words, when I read these words over this past few days, I wrote the word evidence in my notes, evidence, the evidence of true Christianity. What is it? The evidence of true Christianity, is it our worship services? Does, 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 do, the fact that we're part of a worship service, does, does this prove the fruit that we're Christians? Is it the evidence of our church activities that really prove that we are disciples of Jesus? Is it our uh, denominational affiliation that proves that we're disciples of Jesus? And Jesus would say those things are all good, they are aids, they supplement and undergird, but the real fruit, the evidence that Jesus looks for in his disciples, it's the fruit. Let me tease this out one step further. We didn't read this, but I went back to Matthew 7 and I read these, these haunting words of Jesus as he closed out his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talked about evidence. And he says, in the same way, and you've heard this before, in the same way, every good tree bears what? Good fruit. But the bad tree bears what? Bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Sometimes wonder if Jesus was hearkening back to Israel when they were calling the good evil and the evil good. Here Jesus is reasserting reality. He's reasserting what is true. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And then he says this, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, and so you will know them. And he was referring to false prophets, of course, but I think it's applicable here. You will know them 
by their fruits, by their fruits. So when my wife and I moved into the house that we're currently living in, the owners of the house told her something that for some reason we're still bound to their words. They showed us this grapevine that grows by the side of the house and they said, you know, it's been there a long time and we just really like it and we don't want you to cut it down. And I couldn't understand why we would ever want to cut down a grape tree. And I was doing this as the summer went on because I saw the little grapelets coming out and I was excited about what I was going to be able to enjoy. For the first time in my life, I never ever had a grape tree growing anywhere, anywhere where I've ever lived and I was so excited. And she didn't tell us that these were wild grapes. And I still remember the day when we picked and, and I have a, my bunch of grapes fell, but it was much longer than this. I picked, this, this is still green, but I picked a bunch of grapes like this from our grape tree. And I, it's, it, you know, when it's fully ripe, it's purple, like the one you're seeing on the screen. And I popped one off and put it in my mouth. And first thing I noticed was it was sour. <laughs> and the seeds were big. And I said, what is this? And I said, you know, we ought to cut this thing down. And Judah said, no, 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 no. The lady said, don't cut it down. Well, it's been over 10 years we've been in that house, and that tree is still kicking it out. And we've never, ever entertained taking these things into the house. Somebody one day came by and said, you know what? You can turn this into wine. Well, yeah, I don't, know, don't even know how I would do that. I don't know how I would do that. But Jesus wants us to bear good fruit. And I put on the screen there that people will know the character of our faith based on the fruit we display. How do we bear it though? So what is the fruit and how do we bear the fruit? Let's just close on those two points. How do we bear it and what is the fruit? Well, Jesus gives us the reason and it's wrapped up in one word and it's the word abide. Abide. John 15, 4 through 5, Jesus says, Abide in me. And I'm glad he said that right after, because if it was just left up to me to abide in Christ, it's over. It's not happening. But he says, Abide in me as I abide in you, just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, those who abide in me, and I in them, they bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. That's, that's, a, that's a line every Christian needs to hold on to. Jesus, without you, we can do nothing. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And so what does it mean to abide? Yeah, it's a very self-explanatory word. It just means to remain. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Steady. Keep your position. Abide in Christ. Always resting on Him. Always turning to Him. Always anchored in Him. Always drawing from Him. Always looking to Him. Continually connected to Him. Touching Him. Abide. Stay near. Don't come and go. Abide. 
And so this morning, I'm an early riser, and I went outside and I picked off a piece of the branch of the grape tree that thinks it's a grape tree. <laughs> I don't think it's grapes. And I broke it off. And it's been about two hours already, and already you can see the leaves, especially this one right here. It's, uh, it, it's wilting. And if I left this here at our church and I came back for it on Monday, it would look something like, like this. This is not pretty, is it? Shriveled, it's dying, it's disconnected from the vine. What happens when we abide in Christ, as we read in the text? It produces fruit. What kind of fruit? Well, if you read John 15, you're going to see words like peace, you're going to see joy, you're going to see love, you're going to see prayer, you're going to see fruitfulness in service. The abiding life is an abundant life. And the strong bond, and this is what's missing now, the strong bond that existed between this, this, this branch and the vine has been severed. And the sap that flows, the sap that flows from the vine into this branch has been severed. That life-giving sap that animates these leaves, that produces these false grapes, that sap has been severed. But I think the principal fruit that God produces through us as we abide in Christ, and I think this is the overarching fruit, it's the fruit of love. Love. That's the sap, that's the life-giving sap for good or ill. Love governs everything we do as believers. In fact, John in his epistle warned us, he says, if we love the world, then the love of God cannot coexist within us. The things of this world will reign supreme in our lives, and we will embrace everything that is in the world that the world says is important, and the love of God in us and the love of the world in us cannot coexist. One has to reign. But love is so important. Because what love does, here's the thing about love, love shapes our habits of worship. And you're here this morning, hopefully you're here this morning, not out of duty, but out of love. It's not a chore to come to church when you are in love with the Father. Love inspires our reading of Scripture. You read John 15, there's a lot there about abiding in God's Word. It's, it's the sap of God's love coursing through us that enables us, inspires us, empowers us to, to, to live into the reading of Scripture. And I hope you're reading the Bible and it's not a chore for you. It's not duty, but it's delight. Love tempers how we respond to people. And I'm telling you, if you hang out with me, I'm going to get on your nerves and you're going to need love in order to relate to me. Love tempers 
the way we respond to people because people will fail us. Love woos us. Listen, love woos us to want to spend time with God. And you don't spend time with God. Okay, it's time to put in my 15 minutes of devotional. Okay, that's done. I can go on with my life. No. Love woos us into the loving presence of God. Love motivates us to obey God. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments, he says in John 15. And that is not a chore, that's a delight. Love keeps us connected. Love keeps us connected. This is God's great expectation for Israel. This is God's great expectation for his church as far back as Deuteronomy. We're told, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That's what God told Israel. Jesus comes along and the lawyers come to Jesus and they're arguing about which is the greatest law. And Jesus says, guys, it's very simple. It's very simple. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. What love does, Paul says in Ephesians 5, to live a life of love. And by li living a life, of, a life of love, we imitate God. Isn't that amazing that we as human beings can actually imitate God? Abiding in the vine, the love of God flowing in our hearts, we then develop God-likeness and we imitate God. So I've been asking myself this question, when God looks at my life, when God looks at your life, when God looks at first prayers, we are a vine. This vine of God was planted back in July, I think it was the 18th of 1868. This vine was planted. 30 people came together and God, God stuck that vine in the soil and God's been watering this vine and this vine has gone through fires and this vine has gone through ups and downs. This vine has gone through all kinds of challenges, both national and local and internal. But God has been faithful to this vine called First Press. But when God looks at this vine, what does God see? What kind of fruit are we producing? Does God see duty or does God see delight? And I'm telling you, friends, this is the missing link to every congregation. We need people to, to, to get involved in serving as a leader, as an elder, a deacon, a trustee. We need people to help out with with Sunday school and with the youth programming, and we need people to participate, and we can't find anyone. And we are in danger of making a huge mistake. Because one of the things that preachers are famous for is guilting people. You're going to go to hell if you don't help out in the children's wing. You're going to break a leg if you don't sign up as an elder, so you better do it. You know, preachers can do that kind of thing to, 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 to manipulate and cause people to be guilty. And I never, ever, ever, ever want to believe in that. I never want to be engaged in that. What I want people to do is to come out of love. Because here's what we believe. That God, in the wisdom of God, when he planted the vine, he placed within the body people with gifts and abilities and all I'm asking you to do, that if you love God, 
If your heart is beating with passion for God, then the question you must ask yourself is, how can I then, in service to this God, give my time and my talents and my resources to him? Because you see, where love is missing, then what you have is struggle. We struggle to pray. And across America, the smallest service in every church across America, except when I was in Egypt, is a prayer meeting. You would never find this many people showing up for a prayer meeting. And that is not a statement to make you feel guilty. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you the way it is. We struggle to attend worship. I, I, I've been a pastor long enough. I hear all the stories as to why people can gather with the body of Christ and worship. We struggle to read scripture. And we will read 500-page tomes. We will, you know, we're going to have a Hobbit party. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. It's a delightful book to read, but to read scripture as God's defining words for our lives. You, 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 you want to hear God's voice? I'm telling you, you go to scripture. We struggle with that, though, and I'm telling you, the problem is not motivation. The problem is love. That's the challenge for us. Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it begins with abiding. Because when we're not abiding and the love of God is not filling our hearts, we find ourselves, as I've said, we operate out of guilt, manipulation, fear, anger, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, anxiety. And so I come back again. When God looks at us, when God looks at first prayers, what kind of fruit are we bearing? Are we here out of duty or delight? Now, the power to bear this fruit, as I said, it doesn't come from us. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, as he left, he told the disciples, I'm going to send you another comforter. He will be in you. He will be with you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power to continue to abide. We call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, he changes us. He changes our desires. He lifts us up out of our religious ruts. He opens our eyes so we can see truth, the beauty of truth, the beauty of reality. And he brings us into his, into his abiding presence. Let me close then with just this one line of what the Holy Spirit does. And if you could bring that screen back up with the apple and the, and the person holding the orange, because this is from Galatians 5, and it says, the fruit of the Spirit. You see that? The fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the fruit that God is looking for in us, in me, in you, in first prayers. This is how the world will know that we are followers of the King. He's looking for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. And if we live by the Spirit, let us then be guided by the Spirit. And friends, we won't, we won't look like this. A lot of churches, though, are shriveling, not just from an attendance standpoint, but the heart and soul of the church shriveled up. 
I'm believing God for better things as we continue to abide in him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the children of God say, Amen. Amen, friends. Amen. So as we close our service, we have an opportunity every week to give an offering to the Lord. And again, I just want you to know, we ask you to give. We believe you should give, but we want you to give out of desire, out of delight, not duty. As you go out of the church this morning, you have a few ways you can give. Those of you online, you can give online. You could leave a gift in the offering plate as you go out, and you can also mail the gift in. But we want this to flow out of delight, not begrudgingly or out of duty. Amen. Amen.